0: You have a question about your home? Ken Patterson is a Class A licensed contractor who has designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects and single-family homes up and down the East Coast. And now, Ken, the contractor, brings his years of experience to the radio. We
1: have ants in the kids' bedroom. So I'm wondering, should we maybe spray the perimeter of the house on the outside, or is this something we tackle on the inside, or...
2: Well, the professional exterminators, and I've worked with them for many years, will do both. They're going to spray the inside along the baseboard. They will also spray the outside of the home. Do you have a question
0: about your home, inside or out? Call Ken, the contractor. Hi, everybody, along with Ken Patterson. I'm Jim Britt, and welcome to another edition of Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken is here to take your questions about your home, inside or out. And you can reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can email questions to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. I'm going to talk a little bit about something that most of
2: you, especially if you're listening at work, Wherever you are, you may be out shopping. Who knows? But things that we tend to be trained on and think about in our workplace, whether you're a school teacher, a construction worker, you're an executive sitting in an office, or you're out sweeping floors, it really doesn't matter. You've all had a fair amount of training and exposure to this over a long period of time, but we don't think of it at home. Can you think about what I'm talking about? How about safety? These are things that are common in our workplace. Since the 70s, since the advent of OSHA and state safety laws and so forth, the federal safety laws, all of us have been exposed to this. Even if you're involved in civic organizations frequently in the scouting programs for Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, these are some things that have been taught for many, many years. But for some reason, if you ask most people when they get into their home environment the things that we know that are proper in our workplace we forget about at home. And some of those include some very basic items from simple things like fall protection, meaning are we paying attention to, uh, we may have rugs that are in the way, items that are set on stairs in our household, for example. We may have ladders if we're working around the house, cleaning the gutters, from leaves from the outside, putting up holiday lights, uh, doing various things, maintenance on our roof, painting, But we don't think about tying those off, do we? We don't think about having a ladder that's tall enough to properly access the area we're working in. We tend to stand on the top step, even though it says, do not stand here. Now, these are things in the workplace that none of us would get away with because we are simply trained to recognize safety. And when we're there, maybe it's because we have coworkers reminding us or it's just the environment that we're in. But we tend to leave that safety hat at the office when we go home. And I want to encourage all of you to take that level of safety to your home place, whether you're living in an apartment, a condo, a single-family home, a mobile home, it really doesn't matter. Safety really has no holiday. And we think a little bit about these items that we deal with in the workplace, many of those are around our household, whether we're dealing with electrical items. Again, we're looking at fall protection. We're not likely to have open pits around the house like we do around construction sites, but we're also dealing with with cooking utensils. We have the potential for fires. We're dealing with chemicals in our storerooms, and our garages. And with that we rarely think about the need for fire extinguishers in our home. For those of you that spend any amount of time in any work environment, you know that you will find fire extinguishers. You're going to find large quantities if you happen to be in a large building, typically one per 3,000 square feet, Uh, maybe a little more, a little less, depending on the hazard of the building that you're in or the type business or industry. But in our houses, again, we just don't think about that. Yet there are so many common fires that occur around houses that, All of us should be looking at fire extinguishers. The types of fire extinguishers, people have asked me, well, what type do I need? Because I see there's so many different types and ratings and classifications that are out there, and I'm thoroughly confused. Do I need a Class A? Do I need a Class K? Or how about that thing that says ABC? What should I have here? First, fire extinguishers are very, very inexpensive today. Most of them are rechargeable, for that matter. So you buy one one time. If you happen to use it, have a discharge with it. Uh, a youngster, somebody picks it up and discharges it by accident. You don't have to throw it away. The, the most economical, the very small ones that you find that might be suitable for cars or something that fits in a glove box, for example, may not be rechargeable. So if you're going to buy one that can be recharged, read the instructions on the outside and be sure it says rechargeable. But the majority of them from a 5-pound, 10-pound on up, and that's mostly what we should have around our home, might be a 5-pound unit, maybe a little bit smaller, are rechargeable by your local fire extinguisher maintenance companies. And typically you're going to pay somewhere between 5 and $15 to have them recharged depending on the size of it and the type of unit that it is. But as far as the classes go that we're talking about, I'm going to touch on this briefly. A Class A extinguisher uh, ordinary combust is designed for ordinary combustible materials such as paper, wood, cardboard, and most plastics. Now, many of you may have an older extinguisher in your home that's rated as just a Class A, or you may have seen one in some of the older workplaces. But it is not designed for the average fires that are seen across this country. A Class B fire extinguisher involves uh, flammables or combustible liquids such as gasoline, kerosene, grease, or oil. But now you're saying, do I need an A and then I need another B for my kitchen and another one for the workshop? Let's deal with this. The ABC rating, fire extinguisher, is most common. I said ABC. And that's what all of you really should be looking at using in and around your home, your garage, your workshop, because it's rated for most any type of fire we're going to experience within our household. Hopefully we never have that. But I can tell you, having been through a fire myself, an apartment fire as a youngster, and uh, having seen some other incidents of fires and having been involved in rebuilding after fires in residence and commercial work, folks, if you can put a fire extinguisher in that may cost you 35 or $40 up front and you can eliminate this problem, you have made your life a whole lot easier and you may have saved your life and somebody else's. So I want to suggest to all of you, go home this evening if you're at the workplace. If you're at home, I want you to look around right now and see if you've got an ABC-rated fire extinguisher somewhere in your house. And if you do, it should be accessible. It should be someplace that the people in your home know where it exists. It does not need to be hidden because it will do you no good in the time of an emergency. The other thing you need to recognize is that fire extinguishers have a time period on them. They don't last forever, meaning... If you bought one five years ago and you're saying, Ken, it's hanging in my garage right now. I'm sure I'm covered. You probably should go look at that little needle on it and see if it's in the green zone. Also, the chemical that's in many of these will settle over time. And that's one reason you want to take them back. If it were in the commercial world, you'd have it recertified every year. But you want to be sure that that extinguisher has the right amount of pressure. You're reading the needle, that it's in the green zone, that it hasn't been discharged or overcharged because when you need it, you don't have time to think about it or to say, I need to go buy one. So remember that. They do have an anticipated life cycle with them. And also, for those of you saying, Ken, I've really got you covered. I've had an extinguisher for 35 years in the garage. Had it serviced a couple of times, too. Well, I also want you to know the canister itself has a definite life cycle time on that. So they do expire over a certain number of years. You're going to see date stamps, usually on the bottom of those as to when they've been manufactured. If you have any reservations about it, your local fire department will be more than thrilled to talk with you about fire safety and the fire extinguisher or extinguishers you have in and around your home. So perhaps you need to do a little checking today.
0: Well, I think the other point that you brought up is worth repeating, and that is safety. We're so conscious of it in the workplace But when you get at home, all of a sudden, a lot of the crazy things that you would never do at the workplace, you have no hesitation jumping on that ladder and trying to jump from the ladder over to there or do this and do that or haul some equipment up if you're working at an elevated situation, which is why there's so many accidents at home. So many at home, but it, it does.
2: It seems to go out the window because we're at home and things just can't happen at home. Yet there are more fires at home than there are in buildings and so forth. So we need to pay attention to these items. Take that safety home with you when you go home at the end of the day.
0: Well, I think one of the other differences is you're not really held accountable for it where you can be at work. You're not at home. It's just good common sense. Yeah, but it can cost you or your family big time. You need to be safe at what you're doing. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. Do you have a question for him? You can reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or email our website, KenTheContractor.com. Ken answers your questions next. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. If you have a question for Ken, you can reach us at 800-614-2975. You can always reach Ken at that number, 800-614-2975, or you can email your questions to our website, KenTheContractor.com. We've got one of those emails right now. now. This one comes to us
2: from Melody in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And this one's rather lengthy, but I find it quite unique. I don't think I've had a question like this. If I have, it's been some time. It said, we had our home recabled or rewired for Internet and video and computerized thermostats and lights, and the new setup is wonderful when it works. There are times when it doesn't, and we're told by the installer that the reason is some local interference. The other smart homeowners have this problem, and where does it come from? You know, the, the, the more sophisticated our homes become, just like the more sophistication we have in our cars, the greater potential we have for issues. But this is not one of those that I can say should be a standard, Melody, or a routine that you have to cope with. Now, I'm going to tell you a few things that could be an issue as far as the install since you've had this rewired, meaning it was not done during new construction. And, for example, the person doing the rewire may have cables adjacent to line voltage electric and that can cause interference occasionally. On new construction, there's clear separation. You can see the wall cavity before it's covered up, obviously. As you put your electric lines in on one side, you bring your low voltage or computer cables in on the other, you know they're not adjacent to each other. Sometimes when folks are doing rewiring because you don't know how the house is wired, you can't see a vertical or horizontal line, you may be crossing or running parallel or adjacent to or right on top of an electrical feed. And line voltage, meaning electricity, the electrical current, can create some problems with our electronic wiring, both with cable as well as telephone and all of the, what we typically call just the low-voltage network within a home. Computer cabling is one that is especially sensitive to electricity, high voltage, and can, can cause some interference. So I would suggest to you, when you're asking what can cause this, that you might bring your installer back out and have them do a little work and check on some of these items. Some other items that are rather basic to this, though, for installers, maybe not for homeowners, but it also has to do with grounding. In some cases, it may be necessary to have a separate or an isolated ground that is your power feed source, for all of your electronic equipment, and that's because you can receive some interference coming through a common ground where other equipment is sharing that as well. So there are reasons for isolated or separate grounds. It's very important that you be sure that what you have, your operating system for your electronics is grounded in the first place and then it's properly grounded along the lines of what I just discussed. And then also you may have some issues with your internet provider. We have seen this occur, uh, if you're, you're having trouble when you're trying to connect through your smartphone, for example, remotely to turn lights on or adjust your temperature. It's possible that you have some issues with the cable provider with the service coming into the home. So you may want to contact your cable provider as well. If other people in your neighborhood are not having an immediate problem, that doesn't mean, though, that you don't have a connection problem, either where it comes into your house or from the pedestal out along your property line. And then I guess the last thing that's extremely uh, obvious and also sometimes very common that you or your installer may want to check will be some loose connections somewhere within the system. The way you're describing this, the fact that it's intermittent, would tell me that if it is a loose connection, it's going to be at the main source. It's not likely to be where it's connected to a TV or a phone line or some other device, uh, thermostat that you're trying to control with your smartphone. So these are some basic items, but the one that's so hard to detect that can create issues will be low-voltage wires that have been put in walls adjacent to the line-voltage electric.
0: Very good. Let's go to the phone lines right now. Our contact number is 800-614-2975. Joining us right now is Tom. Hey, Tom, you're on the air with Ken, the contractor.
3: Hey, Ken. Hi, Tom. I am... Getting ready to build a little deck, and actually, it's going to have a handicap ramp on it. That's another story. Okay, it's not me, but uh, I'm looking at all these decking prices, and the synthetic decking is just outrageous. And I don't really mind going out there and staying at it every once, in, you know, a couple of years or something. Okay, but what I was wondering is the the price of your basic deck boards of a regular treated 2x6 are not that far apart. And I was wondering what you thought about using regular 2x6s on the deck instead of the regular decking boards.
2: My answer is really short and simple to that. I would not do it. Deck boards are designed for deck board use uh, in, in a specific way. If you compare the two, even though they may be milled from the same type or same size lumber, you'll find typically that the bottom of them... They're cut somewhere in the center. Many of them are. They may be notched. They may be beveled a little bit. They're also going to tend to be beveled along the edges, most of them are, which eliminates some of the splintering. But the reason they, many manufacturers make adjustments on the bottom of the deck board is to help prevent it from cupping and warping. It performs better as a deck board than a standard two-by-wood.
3: That's what I was trying to figure out because... I mean, I like it to be heavy-duty. I just, I just wondered what the considerations were as far as using just regular dimensional lumber.
2: Yeah, and as you pointed out, the price is really similar in most cases. They're not exactly the same, but deck boards will give you better performance long-term and less maintenance than using standard 2x6s, for example.
0: Thanks for your call. Tom, we do appreciate it. Again, our contact number is 800-614-2975. And don't forget, you can email your questions to Ken's website, KenTheContractor.com. Let's sneak in one of those emails. So Allison writes,
2: it says, if you lower a 10-foot ceiling on the ground floor of a two-story house using, she says, a hung tile system, I assume this is a suspended tile or grid system, does it save enough money to justify the cost, but she goes on to say, everything else being equal, equal, I like these grand old ceilings. Well, you know, Allison, for you and everybody else that live in these grand houses, it's difficult to uh, build those these days because of the cost, and most people do not want to see 10, 11, 12, 14 foot high ceilings in new construction, partly because of the energy cost. But you're in a house that I'm sure has a lot of uh, uh, ornate trim, and other items, houses of this period. And to answer your question, a 10-foot ceiling versus an 8-foot ceiling increases what you have to heat and cool by 20%. So clearly on just volume, the fact that you've got more air to move, more air to heat and cool, your operating cost will be greater than if you have lower ceilings. But I'm, And when you put an acoustical ceiling in or you drop that, you are going to reduce that volume, and it can have an effect on reducing your energy cost. But you've given me a two-part question, and it's not that you really want to get rid of this ceiling, but I sense you're trying to save energy. So I'm going to make a suggestion to you that I have for so many people, and it works very well. Rather than spend the money to install a drop ceiling and then cover up these higher ceilings that you want to see, think about installing a ceiling fan or multiple ceiling fans, depending on how many rooms you have, a fan in each room, and then operate that in the winter on a reverse cycle, which means it's going to move backwards, and what it's going to do is force the air up and move that hot air off the ceiling back down to the floor. You've already paid to create that heat in your, your heating system. So you want to get it back down where you live. And a fan operating in the reverse cycle does exactly that. Even the power companies endorse this. And a lot of people have trouble buying into that, but it really works. So you will find that rather than spending money for a suspended grid and tile system, that you will spend less to install ceiling fans, and to operate those in reverse cycle during the winter months. In the summer months, you want to turn them on also in the proper cycle. They'll be moving forward, and you'll feel a little air movement running across you. We tend to feel cooler in the summertime just by having air cross our bodies. It doesn't have to be a temperature necessarily in terms of setting it at 70, 68, 72, whatever. It's more about the air movement across our bodies. So that ceiling fan will be a great investment for you and allow you to maintain this high ceiling that you like so much in your home and not
0: spend excess money on putting in a ceiling, tiling, grid system. Allison, thank you for your email. Don't forget, you can forward your emails to Ken at KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken The Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Thanks for making Ken the Contractor part of your weekend. You can reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Let's go to the phones right now. Wayne joins us. He wants to talk pressure washers. Hi, Wayne. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor.
4: All right. Let's talk pressure washers. Okay. I don't think my brother-in-law, who is a builder of houses at Kings Mill and Williamsburg, which are very exclusive houses, he warns against pressure washers. If if there's little hairline cracks in the brick, which happens to all houses, this forces water in behind the brick. And if you keep doing it and keep doing it, it's going to start smelling. It's going to start molding. Am I right or am I wrong?
2: Well, if brick's installed properly, it has an airspace behind it. The masons would yeah. refer to it as a finger space. It gives them room to lay that brick. And that actually, there is some very minuscule, but some degree of energy efficiency that that adds to the overall structure. Right. And that's one reason we put vapor barriers on the wall before the brick goes up, because moisture, depending on the type of brick, moisture can get through that brick anyway, the face brick and the mortar joint as well. But there's right. no there's no doubt about it anytime you force water against something it has a greater potential of penetrating that and sitting there and taking longer to dry out. but it should still dry regardless it's no different than having well, a massive rain but I do want to say this with with pressure washers and brick manufacturers of the brick do not recommend using a pressure washer on brick one because you damage the face of it also because as you uh, are talking, it can damage that mortar, and in the winter months, that can create some other issues. So I, exactly. I'm, I'm one it, that would suggest will... I suggest you stay away from pressure washers and brick, anyway.
4: Well, and the aluminum siding.
2: If you don't know how to use it on yeah. aluminum siding, what you're going to do is Jim has talked about on occasion, leave the mark of Zorro somewhere in there because it will cut through the finish; it'll drill a hole in it. That's right. But you know,
4: plus for... plus salt-treated lumber. He said, do not use pressure washer on salt treated lumber
2: well it tends to get rid of some of the effectiveness some of the chemicals and so forth that's on that lumber and uh, i wouldn't disagree with that either again it may look great for a while but you have to think about what you're doing in terms of harming that most of us wouldn't take a pressure washer to our car yeah Uh, that's exactly right and so if you're not going to put it on a finish like your vehicle you need to be careful now i'm talking about the average individual if you've got a trained professional that understands the type tips to use the pressure Because most of us think 5,000 PSI has got to be better than 2,500. There might be a reason to use a 1,500 PSI pressure washer for some basic cleaning, but you're not forcing water into your mortar joints or damaging your brick if you know what you're doing. Exactly. So you raise a very good question that all of us should be thinking about. Just because I've got a 5,000 PSI unit doesn't mean I can go out and and, uh, clean everything here. So be careful whatever you're doing with the pressure washers. Good
0: call. Thanks. Thank you, Wayne. We do appreciate it. Yes, I did leave the infamous mark of zorro on the uh, brick front of my house
2: well that's the reason i refer to it occasionally you've made everybody in listening land aware of that so i just it's a reminder to folks that one if they want to know where jim lives it's the one with the mark of zorro on the the foundation of the the brick but secondly uh, you know as we just discussed uh, pressure washers are great at doing certain things but it's so easy if you don't know how to use it like any other tool to damage the property be careful.
0: All right. Let's go to our mailbag from com And this one comes to us uh, from Francis, who listens to our program on WEEU.
2: Yeah, and Francis um, apparently lives in Shillington, PA, in Pennsylvania, and she's looking at some fence work. We have so many fence questions. In fact, when we look at our website, fencing usually ranks in the number one or number two slot of hits and questions that we have. So a lot of you are involved in fencing, whether you have bad neighbors or just you need to do a lot of maintenance or you just want that privacy. In her case, she's got pets that she's trying to deal with. She said, we're going to replace the old wooden fence in our backyard. It's full of holes and has many broken boards due partly from baseballs. Our yard backs up to an open field where the kids play ball. She goes on to say, I'm happy to have them there and we have good neighbors, but I need a solid fence to keep my dogs in. So I'm glad... Francis, that you qualified that. At least I know this is not about your neighbors. He says, I'm tired of repairing the fences. I've looked at vinyl fencing, but I'm told it may be damaged by an impact. It's too pricey for us to replace or repair on a very frequent basis. Should I use thicker wood and replace with the same wood materials, or are there other things in the market? Well, your first option, as you brought up, is that you could use a thicker wood material if your post and the secondary structure, meaning the horizontal members, are sound, Francis, and the, then you may want to just consider replacing the vertical boards on your fence. Most prefabricated fences, and I'm making an assumption here, are installed with materials that may be five eighths or a half inch thick. They're much thinner than traditional one by boards, where you're dealing with three quarters to seven eighths of an inch. So if you have a high-impact area and you really like the wood fence and you also find that it suits your budget, you may want to simply replace all those vertical members with a, a full, thick one-by member as opposed to using a regular fence slat. It will take a lot more impact, and it will last you much longer if it is still a fence material and pressure treated, if that's what you've got now. But I do want to give you, at least I want to share with you, a product that I brought to the show here a few months back. First time I saw this was at the International Builder Show. Brought the sample in. We couldn't show it to you, but Jim and I were quite impressed with this. And it's a product produced by uh, uh, Simtek, S-I-M-T-E-K, Fence. And you'll find out more than I have time to share with you on the air, but go to Simtek, www.SimtekFence, dot com, and you will see this particular product that is it is a stone-looking fence. It's molded using polyethylene and reinforced with galvanized steel. This fencing material has started taking off as I have followed it. I have not installed any on projects. I'm looking for an opportunity to do that. But as I have followed this, as it's expanded around the country, apparently it's gaining
0: quite a bit of traction. Well, you know, what I was impressed when you brought it in is it actually looked like something that, that you would utilize on a... Uh, a pseudo brick-looking wall uh, that, that you were looking to put up or some type of natural stone. It, you touch it, it has a smooth finish, but it, it, it appears to have texture.
2: It appears to have texture. It actually has some depth to it. There are mortar joints, if you will, that are cast into this. But the, the things that impressed me so much when I first saw this product is its resistance to impact to golf balls, to baseballs for people that live in high-impact areas where rocks or other things. I mean, just neighborhood things that kids get involved
0: with. I.e., people who have kids or who have kids who live next door to them. They live
2: next door. I mean, these are all things that develop when you've got play yards and those type items. So it, it's so impact-resistant that it will take a baseball at 90 miles an hour, and it doesn't put a spot on it, and they've tested that. Also, it's designed for high wind loads because of the structural system. So if you happen to have issues with with snow that builds up or just high winds with some of your winter storms, this can be a great asset. And one of the best things that I see that will make this product successful in the commercial world and certainly more urban areas is that graffiti washes off of it with soap and water. So you're not going to be able to paint or discolor or disfigure this.
0: And again, the manufacturer is?
2: Simtek, S-I-M-T-E-K, simtech Fence. Go to SimtekFence.com. And, Francis, for you and others, that's what I'd recommend in the environment you're dealing with. You're going to find it price affordable in most cases compared to other
0: vinyl products on the market. And tell them that can the contractor said to get in touch. Absolutely. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. You can reach him through our website. Lots of information there, including in Ken's toolbox, some of the most popular to- topics that we deal with on a regular basis. That's right there on the front page of Ken dot com. Or if you'd like to join us here on the radio program, it's 800-614-2975. That's the contact number for Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Our contact number is 800-614-2975. You can always reach Ken at that number, 800-614-2975. Or you can email your questions to KenTheContractor.com. Let's go back to the phone lines right now. Let's head to Wisconsin. This is Lula joining us. She's got a question for Ken. Hi, Lula. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Hi, Ken. Hi there. How can I help Ken. you today?
1: Um, I was calling because I have a step just one step in the front, and I want to extend it on each side. And so what I thought was if I can maybe, like, build a frame on each side and then, you know, make some uh, concrete up and pour it in there. But what I wanted to do was, like, pour it over the whole step to make one big step. And I wasn't for sure if I could do that because I don't know if, it, um, if it'll hold, if it'll crack. Should I make this step taller or, or what? I well, just want to get one big step.
2: Let me ask you some questions before I give you an answer. Now, the step that exists right now, and assume you're coming from the house down to a sidewalk or a driveway, so you have only one tread, that's one horizontal step right. that's there, okay, which means you have two vertical rises. You are going to step down a few inches from the house onto the, the tread area, and then you're going to step from there again onto a sidewalk or a driveway. Is that correct?
1: That's right. Okay.
2: Okay. What, roughly, what is the height of those two vertical rises from the house to the step and the step to the sidewalk? Do you know?
1: Um, from from the step to from the house to the step is it probably about four inches, no more than five.
2: Okay. And then, what and about then, from the step down to the sidewalk area?
1: Oh, that's probably about. I'm going to guess about maybe ten to twelve inches.
2: Okay. That, that's it's a, little... a big
1: step and I think what has happened was when you step off the, 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 the main step onto the sidewalk um, the sidewalk may have sunk some uh-huh And so what I, when I thought about just making one big step and I was gonna like put a little bit of cement in the front of that step to make it uh, you know rise up a little bit.
2: okay essentially you were going to create a second tread or a second step then to fill that gap.
1: Yes. Okay, well, then, not a second, actually a step, but just that take there where that sidewalk is. So you're going to slope just,
2: the sidewalk up then?
1: Um, yeah, yeah, just okay. build it
2: up. Okay, because that would be, there's several answers to your question. One, you can do what you're asking about, but I would be a little concerned about your safety and that of others coming and going from the house, because by pouring concrete over the existing step to do it in a thickness where it will bond Mm-hmm. you're going to shorten the step from the house to that, but you're going to increase the height where it would be for a lot of people, maybe for you, it would be very uncomfortable and certainly outside any building code. It would, it would become oh. unsafe when you pour over the top of that. Now, you're on the right track to think about elevating that sidewalk. Is the okay. sidewalk a, a city sidewalk or is it your private sidewalk from the house? Um,
1: private sidewalk from the house.
2: For a few, At least for a few feet. Now, if you're you're down 10 inches, what you may want to consider, you only have a four-inch step down from the house to the first tread. You're saying four to five inches. Yes. If you have the room, instead of forming and pouring a step over the existing one, which will make it even further from the sidewalk, I would go in front of that and form and pour a new landing or another tread. And I would do it so I have a consistent I would split that in the middle. If that's 10 inches, roughly 10 inches or so, that you have five inches from the the current step to the new step and then another five inches from there down to the sidewalk. What that means is you have three risers that are fairly consistent. If you were building new construction, it would have to be consistent to meet building codes across the country. But that would give you essentially five inches, five inches, and five inches, let's say plus or minus a half inch the way you're describing it. That would be a good, safe walking pattern for you. And at the same time, you would reduce that big, tall step that you have from the sidewalk now, making it much safer for you and others, and you're still only pouring one step. Now, I think there's a second part to your question, and that is you wanted to widen the step that you have. Right. So it may be three feet, and you want to take it to four or five, so you have some additional width when you come out the door or entering the door, correct? Yes. Okay. Okay. You can still do that. If you want to pour a new step down below so you've reduced that 10-inch space to 5 inches, as I just described, if your current landing or step is 3 feet wide and you want it to be 5 feet, then form and pour that lower one 5 feet wide. You've already resolved that problem. Okay. And then on the existing one, you can set your forms on the outside on each end, and you can add concrete to the end. You won't be coming across the top of it. But what you want to do, anytime you're adding concrete, you don't want to just form it and leave it there. You want to to drill and dowel some rebar, some reinforcing steel. In that case, I would probably be using at at least a number four bar, I say at least, but a number four bar, which is a half-inch bar. You might go a little smaller to a number three, but you want to drill and dowel that into the concrete. You want to use a concrete bonding agent, and then you want to pour this concrete. You also want to be sure that it's on a good, solid foundation so there's no potential for settlement. Now, what that's going to leave you with is consistency in two treads, three risers of about five inches each. It'll be easy to navigate when you've got your arms full of groceries or whatever. But you're going to end up seeing a cold joint at the existing step where you have added this concrete on the end. There are, pro- there are products that companies like QuickCrete manufacture, they're very common nationwide. That's a coating product. If you don't want to see the joints and it's only cosmetic, it will have nothing to do with it structurally. If you follow the instructions I've given you, it would only be cosmetic. But these products will cover those joints, will coat the the treads, the tread area, and the risers, and leave those steps looking uniform and completely new, with a good color to them and a good finish on them, so that somebody will come up and think you just had a whole new set of steps and landing poured in front of your house.
1: Great.
2: So there's a little more to it than the question is very simple. But I wanted to explain it in some detail because what I don't want you to do is to put this form over the existing step, extend the width of it, and pour concrete over the top just to get rid of those joints. Now you're going to change that top dimension maybe from five inches down to three because you're going to have to pour at least two inches of concrete, reinforce it, and bond it over that tread to get it to bond and work properly. Uh, okay. Then all of a sudden you're up to a 12-inch step on the bottom, and that's very unsafe.
3: Yeah.
2: Okay. Does that help you? you have you yeah. followed all
1: that? Oh, yeah, and I've been writing as you were talking.
2: Well, I tell you, if you weren't able to take all the notes, you can go to the website. You can listen to the podcast. Uh, Later on, you can pull this segment out. They're all tagged, and you can take your time and listen to it several times and take the notes from there. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for your call. We appreciate you listening.
0: Thank you, Lula. Well, we do appreciate that. Hey, before we go, we want to sneak in our app of the week. What's the deal with this week?
2: Well, this one has to, this one's special for those of you that are into woodworking or maybe thinking about having a wainscoting or some trim or flooring installed in the house. And if you happen to be a cabinet builder, I know my son likes working with it. This one is great. This particular uh, app of the week is by Double Dog Studio. It's called the ID Wood app. And what this does, it contains an encyclopedic entry, if you will, for 160 different types of wood. You didn't know there were that many out there, did you? 160 different types, including high resolution pictures and the most common uses and detailed descriptions of each because for, frankly, not every wood is right for every product in and around our home. So if you're into woodworking, you want to think about the ID Wood app. It's rated four plus stars, so that's a great one. That's a good start. Costs four ninety nine. It's like owning an encyclopedia for lumber, and you want to be sure you're downloading the latest version, which is three point two. The ID Wood app by Double Dog Studio.
0: Very good. And if you want to keep up to date on all of our apps of the week, all you have to do is just go to the website KenTheContractor dot com, and you'll find right there on the front page an icon that says App of the Week. Click on that, and you can take a look at some of the different apps that Ken has brought you over the course of programs. Are right here. That'll wrap up this hour of Ken the Contractor. If you have a question about your home inside or out, you can always reach Ken the Contractor at 800-614-2975. Or you can email your questions to our website. That's kenthecontractor.com. And don't forget a lot of home improvement information available right there at that website. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson, is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.